Uh, there's a QR code on the screen behind me, and uh, what that is, and, and we've done this now, uh, this is our second week doing it, and it's going to become a feature that we do from now on, but that will lead you to uh, the sermon notes. Many of you like to have a copy of the notes. There is a ton more in the notes than I get the opportunity to share up here, and so we hope this will be an encouragement to you and just a way for you to take what we hear on Sunday morning home with you, and uh, some of you would like to take your own notes, and we certainly uh, want you to do that. Ben, as you were talking about the family tree, um, I, I just marveled at how God sort of laid that on your heart, and uh, as we get into uh, what we're talking about in James chapter 2, I'm going to ask you to turn there in your Bible, but I, I came across a story in my, my study for our message this morning that was really stunning. It got my attention because it happened in the state of Wisconsin, where Beth and I and our family lived for many years, and it happened in a little town not too far away from where we were, a little town called Spring Green. And there was a woman uh, who lived there. Her name was Lana Peters, and Lana has an amazing story. She grew up in Russia. She was born in 1926. She died uh, in 2011 when she was 85 years of age. And on November, or on March 6, rather, 1967, she was 41 years of age. And she found herself in New Delhi, India. Lana grew up and um, really had a, a sort of a very unusual privileged background. Um, many, many of uh, her, her life story, people that bought, did her biography, speak about this. And, uh, but she, she really had a troubled life as she got into her marriage. She was married three different times, actually married twice, and then had a common-law husband, and her common-law husband was from India, and when he died, she got permission to leave Russia and go to India to bury him or to scatter his ashes as he had wished. And while she was there, uh, she walked into the U.S. Embassy in New Delhi and asked for political asylum. She wanted to defect from the Soviet Union. She was granted that asylum, and she moved to a small town in Wisconsin where she lived for the rest of her life, except for a very small period of time in uh, the uh, 90s when she went back to Russia for a little bit. She was running away from her past. Her life story is the story of a woman who did everything she could to run away from her family tree. And she couldn't run far enough away to overcome the fact that her father was Joseph Stalin, who was the premier of the Soviet Union for almost 30 years. Under his brutal reign... Many of his immediate circle of acquaintances, thousands of them, were executed uh, for perceived acts of disloyalty, and she watched all of this. When she was six years old, her mother died, and she didn't know until she was 15 that her mother actually committed suicide because she couldn't live with what uh, she was seeing her husband do. By the end of Stalin's regime, over 9 million people had been executed by his direct command, and uh, there's a great debate about how many Russians actually lost their lives because of his policies 
And some people put that up in the 30 to 40 million range. And so here's this woman who grew up with his name, and she couldn't live with it. And her entire life, she spent trying to run away from her family tree. What do you do when that's your family tree? How do you handle that? Well, that's the story that we're going to look at as we look at the second friend of God that James introduces us to. You remember as we've been making our way through the book of James, James is reminding us that God has, through the word of truth, that he sent down as a good and perfect gift. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 18. God has taken that word of truth, that good and perfect gift, and he has used it to bring forth something. Just like when we allow sin to take root in our heart and we yield to temptation and the lust that drew us to that temptation uh, brings forth something. It brings forth death. There is a counter to that, and the counter is the good and perfect gift that God sent down from heaven. And when that is allowed to work in our lives, it brings forth something entirely different. It brings forth life. And James talks about this life as the first fruits. And so we are those first fruits. And James says, as the first fruits of God, who are the product of the Word of God working in your heart and life, you are to be quick to hear. You are to be slow to speak. You are to be a doer of the Word. And so he has been talking to us about our mission as those first fruits of God in the big kingdom of God, as he has placed us in all the little kingdoms where we live. You and I live in the little kingdoms of the world. I live in the city of Easley. Some of you live in Greenville. Some of you live in Spartanburg. Some of you live in Anderson. Some of you live in Williamston. And there are all kinds of cities where you live, where you have your being, you have your identity, you have your life. But in the midst of all of that, you are, above all of that, a member of this big kingdom that God is at work in. And because of that, you are to live out your living faith. And we talked about what a living faith looks like in the book of James. It is a faith that is wholehearted. It is single-focused. And it is fully trusting in God and in his word. And if you've been here for our series in James, we say that together every Sunday. So I want us to say it again today, all right? A a living faith is a faith that is wholehearted, it is single-focused, and it is fully trusting in God and in his word. And as we've been making our way through the book, James is introducing us to friends of God, people that God has called his friends. And last week, we looked at the first friend. We looked at the friend of God named Abraham. And Abraham was answering a question that James raises. Abraham was answering the question, what kind of faith actually saves a person? Is it a word-only faith, or is it a faith that works? And so we looked at how James presented the life of Abraham And we noted that he took us to two different points in Abraham's life that involved a journey. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God spoke to Abraham when he was still in Ur of the Chaldees, and he said to him, you need to leave everything. You need to leave your family, you need to leave your home, you need to leave all that you know, and you need to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And when you get there, I'm going to give you a city whose builder and maker is God. And Abraham was quick to hear. In fact, 
We hear nothing out of Abraham for that early point in the chapter. He just gets up and he goes. He is quick to hear. He is slow to speak. He is a doer of the word. And because he believed God in Genesis chapter 15, Moses says that God looked at that belief and he accounted to Abraham's life righteousness. And that's when he became the friend of God. But how do we know that that faith was real? In other words, how do we know that the faith that Abraham talked about in Genesis 15 and that Moses wrote about in Genesis 12, how do we know it was real? And so we came to that second journey that God called Abraham to take in Genesis chapter 22 when he said, take your son, the son of promise, the one that everything hinges on, and take him to Mount Moriah, and when you get there, I want you to sacrifice your only son. And again, Abraham is quiet. He is quick to hear. He is slow to speak. He is slow to anger. He doesn't rage against God. He doesn't challenge God. He doesn't question God. He gets up and he goes. And he did this because he believed God. And that's what a living faith looks like. That is what a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith actually looks like when it gets up in the morning in our lives. But there's a second question that James now turns to, and that is this. So now that I know what kind of faith saves and what it looked like, how do I know that on the day when I actually need it to save me, it will save me? How do I know that when God brings judgment to the earth, the faith that I have that is just like Abraham's faith will actually deliver me from the wrath of God. And James says, let me introduce you to a second friend. I want to introduce you to a woman whose faith actually did save her on the day that God's wrath came and flattened the entire city in which she dwelt. I want to bring you, Abraham says, into the life of the second friend of God, a woman named Rahab. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give you a little background to Rahab, and then I want to tell you her story as we make some applications to our life. And I've called the message, The Gospel According to Rahab, When Grace Ran Red, or When Grace Runs Red. Her story is told in five places in our Bible. You can find her story here in James 2. You can find her story in Hebrews 11. You can find her story in Matthew 1. And you can find her story in two chapters in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6. So what do we know from the scripture and what do we know about Rahab? She's actually one of the most intriguing people in your Bible. The Jewish rabbis... Uh, spent more time writing about Rahab than they wrote about any other woman in Scripture. They considered her to be one of the four most beautiful women outside of Eve that God ever created. And they wrote about her in that way. You say, well, who are the other three? Well, Sarah, Abraham's wife, and uh, Abigail, David's wife, and uh, Esther. And so that's who, if you want to know who the Jewish rabbis thought, the most beautiful women in the world that God ever created outside of Eve, Rahab would be in that list. Rahab, everywhere in the scripture she is mentioned, Rahab, except one, Rahab is mentioned 
as a prostitute. In fact, her name signifies her profession. She was very good at what she did. When you get to Joshua chapter 2 and you start reading about her life, everybody in the city of Jericho knew who she was, and everybody in the city of Jericho knew exactly what she did. She had a home on the walls of the city. The city of Jericho was a city that existed for a thousand years before Rahab came to live there. She had lived there the entire time the Israelites had been wandering in the wilderness. There was a 40-year period of time when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness, and chances are very, very great that Rahab lived most of those times in the city of Jericho, in her home, on the wall, next to the city gates. You know she was near the gates because she could look down and she could see the gates and that they were closed when she talked to the city officials. Or about to close as as she talked to the city officials. The king knew who she was. When the two spies come in, they immediately are, are aware that these men are Hebrews and they have come in to do a mission, and the king says, I know exactly where those men are, and I want you to go to Rahab's house, and I want you to find them. So he knew who she was. Tradition would say that Rahab was a harlot in the city of Jericho, and she serviced all of the men in the city, including the king and including his nobles. She was very good at what she did, and she was well known in the city, to the point that the king knew who she was. She knew what was going on in the city. She knew what was going on outside of the city. And because she had access to all of the men in the city and all of the men in the neighboring region, she knew what was going on in their thinking and she knew what was going on in, uh, in their planning. And so she had, all of the, she had access to all of this information. Rahab also knew about a huge army that had gathered three days' journey from her city on the other side of the Jordan River. And she knew why they were there. She had heard about this army. She was able to quote in the text we read this morning, Exodus 15, a song, an inspired song that God gave to Moses 40 years earlier, right after they walked across the Red Sea and turned around and saw the armies of Pharaoh drown when those waves came crashing back together. And as they got on the other side of that experience, God gave to Moses an inspired song that he wrote down. And Rahab knew that song. She quotes from it in Joshua chapter 2. She'd heard more recently about what God had done for this army in uh, the Amorite victories they had over the two kings that stood in their way, that opposed them coming. She knew that God had promised to give her city and her land to these men and to that army. And so these men come to this city and they depart from their journey. Joshua says to them, I want... Now Joshua does this secretly. He doesn't tell Israel what he's doing. He goes to these two men and he says, I have a secret mission for, for, uh, for you. I want you to go into... Jericho, and I want you to do something when you get there. I want you to spy out the land, but there's something else that Joshua had in mind, and you can see what he had in mind uh, uh, in, in, in the passage here in James chapter 2 when he calls them messengers, and we will look at that here in a moment. And so these men depart from a place called Shittim. 
And if you go back to Numbers chapter 25, this was the place where the people of Israel had been before, and they had gone to the Moabite women and to the Amorite women, and they had committed fornication with them. They committed whoredom. The word that Numbers uses is the word whoredom. They committed that with these women. And so here is Israel. They are back in that place, and these two men are sent by Joshua, and they land in Rahab's brothel, which is on the city walls. And everybody knows where it is. Everybody knows what goes on there. And here are the men and they come to this place, and they're looking for lodging for night. Now, the writer of Joshua chapter 2 is very clear, and he's very careful in the grammar of the text to make sure you know that nothing immoral happened with these two men when they got to Rahab's house. And that's not why they went to that house. There is something that is going on. There is a great reversal that is happening. Israel went to Shittim, and the last time they were there, there was a great immoral act that took place. And now they're back at that same place, and two men are now going to a place where immorality is the norm, and there's something different going to happen this time. And it's going to happen at the house of the city prostitute named Rahab. So, what is her story? If anybody merited the wrath of God, if any place merited the wrath of God, it was this city, Jericho. It was a city filled with immorality and idolatry and well-known in its day for all of that. So if any city in Canaan uh, merited the destruction that God had promised Abraham, he would wait 400 years to bring, it was this city. And if anybody in that city merited destruction, personally, it was this woman, Rahab. So what's her story? Well, let's look at her story very quickly this morning and then draw some conclusions. Let's begin by looking at the inauspicious beginning of her story, her sinful character. We noted earlier that every biblical account except one identifies her as a prostitute. In Old Testament times, there were two kinds of prostitutes in the city. One would have been the religious prostitutes that were in the city temple and as part of the worship of the false god would engage in ritual prostitution and they were held in high esteem by everybody in the city. And the other was just the normal everyday city prostitute that sold herself for money. And that is exactly what Rahab was. The grammar used by James and the writer of Hebrews to describe her as a prostitute makes clear in James's day, if you were reading this or hearing this, it would be very clear to you that prostitution wasn't just something that Rahab did because she had to. She sort of fell into it and it was the only thing she could do. The idea here is that this is who she was. This was who she was at, at, at her core. And so as you think about if, if God was going to pick the first Gentile to become a member of his kingdom, would you have picked Rahab? Because here's the thing I want you to know about her past, and even in her sinful character. She is the first Gentile convert to God's people outside of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. When you go back to Moses and you read about his father-in-law, he came and became a part of the kingdom of God that he was building through Israel. But the first Gentile woman whoever came to be a member of Israel, the first Gentile, was this town prostitute named Rahab. 
You would never have expected that. There is a great reversal going on here where the, where the ultimate outsider is going to about to become the ultimate insider. And so that's her sinful character. But what happens when these two men come into the city? And that's the sort of the next chapter in the story is this shocking, surprising thing that happens. There is this immense plot twist that takes place, her surprising conduct. And we can read about it in Hebrews 11.31 and in James chapter 2. She gave a friendly welcome to the spies. Here are these two men that come into the city, and it's really clear who they are. The idea that they were on a secret mission isn't so much that Joshua's saying to them, look, when you get there, kind of keep quiet and kind of don't tell anybody what you're doing. It's actually a secret he's keeping from Israel. The secret mission is one that Joshua's not telling his own people about. He's actually saying to the men, I want you to go to Jericho. Because when they get there, there is no indication that he is or they are trying to hide what they're doing. Rahab is going to hide them in a minute. But these men have a message that they want to give. And it's really clear that as soon as they get there, immediately the king hears who they are. They know that they are men of Israel, and he knows why they're there, and he knows where they are. And so he immediately comes through his messengers to Rahab's house, and he is seeking to do evil to these men. What will Rahab do? She knows exactly who these men are, and she receives them with peace. She knows who they are, and she receives them with peace. Look at verse 2 in Joshua chapter 2. If you go there in your Bible, if you see verse 2 and verse 4, when the woman, uh, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, And she said to the men who were standing at her door, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalk of flax that she laid out in order on the roof. She received these men, Hebrew says, with shalom. That's an important term. These men were coming into her city to to announce something that God was going to bring on the city of Jericho, and it wasn't shalom. It was judgment. And so here's the city prostitute, and she has within her power the opportunity to do great good to the king, great good to her city, and to earn a great deal of monetary reward for what she would do. And instead, she aligns herself with these two men. This is a stunning reversal. And that's what James means when he says to to us, to you and to me, I want you to know that this woman that we're reading about, this the city prostitute that we're reading about, I want you to know that she was a friend of God. She aligned herself fully against everybody that she knew, against everybody that she she understood. She aligned herself against her city and her culture, and, and she aligned herself with God. 
Her actions were intentional. They were thoughtful. They were personal. She protected these men from her own people. They came to her and she secreted them on the roof under a large pile of flax. And she did so before the king's men ever showed up at her door. That's an important detail in Joshua chapter 2. As soon as she understood who these men were, she had made a decision about what to do with these men because she knew why they were there. She knew they were in the city to announce a judgment that God was going to bring on her city, and she knew immediately how that was going to go down because she knew what the men in the city were thinking. And she's going to tell us that here in just a moment. Which brings us to the third thing in her story. There is this confession, this stunning confession that comes out of her mouth as she talks to the men. And that's the passage that we looked at this morning. Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Before the men lay down, she came to them on the roof and she said to the men, I know, I know. And then she's going to tell them three things she knows. And then she's going to say later on in the text in verse 10, for we have heard. I know some things and we have heard some things. So what is it that she knew? What is it that Rahab knew? Look at verse 9. Rahab said, I know, I know. And the idea here is I am fully convinced of this. It's not just like I kind of heard this and I don't know if it's true or not. She said, I am fully convinced. I know without a shadow of a doubt. And here's what I know. I know that the Lord, and she uses the covenant name of God. So if you were a Canaanite, you believed in the existence of gods. In fact, your city had its own gods. And the typical word that you would use to talk about the idea of God was the word El. Oftentimes in the scripture, uh, when, you, when you read about God's names, there are, there are two parts to God's name. There's El Elyon, or uh, there's El Shaddai. And the word El is the word, the Hebrew word, or the Aramaic word for God. And that's the word you would expect to come out of Rahab's mouth. I know that El or Elohim has given you the land, but she doesn't. She uses the word Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God. She understood who God was. And she embraced the reality that God had the right to do with the earth whatever he wanted to do. Notice how she says here, I know that this God, Yahweh, has given you the land. The, the, the Eretz, that's the word, the Hebrew word Eretz, is the word that, that God used when he said to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. And the very piece of land, the Eretz, that God is talking about with Abraham 400 years earlier is the ground that, Ab- that Rahab is living on. It's, it's the city of Jericho and the land of Canaan. And Rahab says, I know who your God is, and I know that he has decided to give you this entire country, including this city. And she said this, I also know that your God has sent great terror into the heart of the men of this city. She said, I know that great fear has fallen on us, and all the inhabitants of land melt away before you. 
So here's her confession. It comes out of what she believes and what she knows. And that brings me to a question I had. How did she know this? How did a pagan woman in the city of Jericho know all of this? How did she come to know about Yahweh? How did she know? Well, she knew because somehow God had brought across her path the word of God. Paul is going to say later, faith comes by what? Hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. And there was a word of God that God had given to Moses 40 years earlier, and it's written down for you in Exodus 15. And somehow that song had wandered throughout the land. As Israel was wandering in the wilderness, this inspired song that Israel sang had wandered and made its way throughout the land. And it had come to Jericho, and Rahab had heard it, and the Spirit of God had caused her to understand it. And so she heard the word. And then she heard the report. She knew that as this nation encountered enemy after enemy after enemy in the wilderness, God had overcome not just the armies of Pharaoh, but he'd overcome every army that had stood in their way up to the last two, these two Amorite kings that were well-known in her region, and they had been totally destroyed by God through his people. The only time the Israelites suffered a defeat militarily in that wilderness wandering is when they committed their rebellion against the Lord. And Rahab had heard of all all of this. But I think there was another way that Rahab heard. I think that God had sent to Jericho two messengers. It's interesting to me as you study the scripture and as you kind of look at when God sent judgment to a city, for example, when he sent judgment to Sodom in Genesis, he sent ahead of that judgment two men to warn the city of Sodom to repent. If you go forward past Rahab all the way hundreds of years later to a judgment God was going to bring on an entire wicked city called Nineveh, before he brought that judgment, what did he do? He sent a messenger named Jonah, albeit an unwilling one. So here are two messengers, and I personally believe, this is my opinion, and you're not obligated to my opinion since I'm I'm marking it out as my opinion, but I believe the reason that James uses the word messengers to describe these two men is because of what Joshua was sending them to do. I think he was sending them to Jericho to announce the coming of judgment and to urge people in that city not to trust their gods and not to trust their walls and not to trust the city that had stood for a thousand years but to repent. And of all the people in that city, there was one person who heard and who believed. And it was a town prostitute. And you know what she did? She turned from her idols to serve the living God and to wait for the coming of Joshua to deliver her. Does that sound like any New Testament passage you know? 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Paul says this is exactly what happens when pagan people hear the gospel. They turn from their idols to serve the living and the true God, and they wait for the coming of his son from heaven. And that son is another Joshua, Jesus. This is a stunning story that happens. 
And so she believes in her heart, and she confesses in her mouth. And here's what she says in verse 11. The Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. That's a stunning statement to come out of the mouth of an idolatress. She's not just saying to the two men, hey, we know that your God, Yahweh, is a really powerful God. She's actually saying something about her gods. She's actually observing that the God she serves, the idols of Jericho, aren't gods at all. That there is really only one true and living God, and his name is Yahweh. This sounds remarkably like the opening lines of what Moses is going to give in Deuteronomy that you and I know as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is what? One. And the idea there is not just that he is a triunity, it's the idea that there are no other gods, period. Rahab has turned away from her idols, and it's very evident by her behavior to despise that she has turned away from the things she would have normally done to try to gain favor with these men. And there's a Bible word for all of this. It's called repentance. I believe that that we see here in the life of Rahab, not just a confession with her mouth that comes out of convenience. Hey, there's a big army. It's going to come. And I don't think we're going to win, so you know what? I'm going to side with you. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. I think Rahab has become convinced in her heart that there is a true God, and his name is Yahweh, and he is offering her liberty and life and freedom. And she takes it. Because what you see next is, uh, in Joshua 2, verses 12 through 4, her bold appeal. And it's, it's actually described in language of promise. This is covenant talk. She says, please swear to me by the Lord. In other words, she wants a formal relationship. <coughs> Pardon me. She wants a formal relationship with God and with his people based on her faith in God, based on his word, and based on the warning. She wants a personal alignment with him. And she wants... Loyal kindness from him. The word has said, which is the word we we looked at in Ephesians when we were going through the book of Ephesians. It's the word so closely tied to shalom. God has exercised kindness, loyalty to us. And Rahab is saying, I want that. I want that. Based on the loyalty I saw God do with your people. He chose them out of Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt. He's been kind to them the entire time they have wandered in the wilderness. Even when they rebelled against him over and over and over again, God was kind to them. I want that kindness. I want that loyalty. And she says, now because I have been kind to you, would you also deal kindly with me? You know, folks, honestly, I don't think Rahab could have looked at her whole life and said, let me describe my whole life to you. It has been a life of loyal kindness. I don't think that's it at all. I think Rahab is looking at a moment when she came to realize the truth about God and the truth about his people 
And she has acted in a completely different way than she would have ever acted before. And she said, based on my repentance, based on what I have done, based on the kindness that I have extended to you, based on the loyalty, that's the idea, based on the loyalty that I have given to you. She's not talking about her good works here. There weren't any. She's not talking about her moral past. There wasn't a moral past. She can't point to this like life of of sort of civic duty and civic service. All she can say is, I have aligned myself and I have acted in loyalty to God and in loyalty to you. And on the basis of what I have done, would you swear to me that God will be loyal to me? And by the way, that's exactly what you and I did when we came to Jesus Christ and we said, based on our belief in you, because we can't, we can't point back to a life of good works. We can't point back to our stand before God. All we can do is say, I have come to believe the truth about Jesus Christ and I have aligned myself with him. I have chosen my side. And that's what, that's what Rahab did. She chose her side. She could have sided with the king. She could have sided with with the people who were convinced that the city walls that had stood for a thousand years would stand again. And all she knew was that she had heard this song that had been written 40 years earlier that talked about the Egyptian army, and she'd heard the story about these two kings, and now these two men are here warning her, and, and God opens her eyes, and she believes, and she says, I'm picking my side, and I'm choosing Yahweh. I'm choosing God. And by the way, that's exactly what happened, isn't it? When God opened your eyes and you saw all of your sin and you saw all of your own righteousness, the walls of your own city that you thought would one day sort of give you protection from the wrath of God and all of a sudden all of that vanished and you said, I am going to side with God through the gospel. And that's exactly what happened to Rahab and in verse 14, you, you find out that the men said to her, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Behold, when we come into the land, you will tie the scarlet cord in the window to which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all of your household. And then they go on in verses 19 and 20 to just reiterate the importance of her being faithful to her faith. And in verse 21, she said, according to your word, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. So here's this woman. She hears the warning the spies bring. God opens her eyes. She turns from idols to serve the living God. She aligns herself with them. And then the two men leave, and she has to stay in the city and wait. And she doesn't really know what's going to happen. She knows what she's done. She knows what she said. She's got the promise of these two young men who are spies. And now she's got to hang her entire future on what they said to her. She could go to the king and say to the king, you know what, actually I have some information that you really might want to know. Those two men actually came to me and here's what they said and here's what they're doing and I'm going to give you this information. She could have done that. She could have renounced. She could have thought it over. She could have said, you know what, 
I know there's a big army out there, uh, but we got a big city here. We got these walls, and, and our, our city hasn't been defeated, and so, you know what, actually, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stay in the city, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to realign myself. Or she could have said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of have a foot in both worlds. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep doing my prostitution business. I'm going to run my brothel. I'm going to keep living just like I lived. And, and so if the city uh, ends up standing and the army of Israel is defeated, I haven't lost anything. But if the army defeats the city, I'm already aligned with there. So now I, you know, this is going to be really convenient for me. She doesn't do any of that. She has aligned herself, and the entire time she waits for Joshua, she is faithful. And she throws this red cord out of her window. The word for cord is the same word in the Hebrew Bible that you would use for hope. She throws a cord of hope out the window. And the word hope, as we've learned as we've gone through James and Ephesians together, isn't like, well, I just hope that, you know, I kind of hope this weekend will not rain. How many of you hope that this week? It's Memorial Day, three-day weekend. It's going to be awesome. I don't want it to rain, and, and so I'm kind of hoping it won't rain. That's not the idea. The idea here is confidence. Rahab is saying, I am putting my confidence, I put my confident expectation in the word of these two men, and here is the evidence of that. I'm announcing it through this red cord that is hanging out the window. Can I give you my personal opinion on this? I think everybody saw that red cord. And I think there were times, personal opinion, right? I think there were times during that period of time when people came to Rahab and said, why do you have that red cord hanging out your window? This is not the time for you to be advertising what you do. And I think Rahab actually told people why she had that cord hanging out a window. Because I put my confident expectation in the God of Israel. So that brings me to the next thing, and that is as we kind of wrap our time up here, was there a salvation for her? Was there a salvation for her? Her gracious salvation is recorded in Joshua chapter 6, verses 22 through 25. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, and in James chapter 2, she was redeemed and rescued in spite of her past. She was rescued by her faith, right? By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. Disobedient to what? Disobedient to God. Disobedient to the message of the spies. And she was rewarded for her faith. Listen to Joshua. So the young man, verse 23, who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Verse 25, but Rahab, the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy. And that brings me to the final thing and that is this, her glorious standing. You know, it's one thing when you're the town prostitute and everybody knows who you are and what you've done, 
and there's this past that you can never run away from. And by some stroke of fortune, you escape the destruction of the city. By the way, the destruction of the city happened exactly the way God said it would happen. Israel's army crosses over, and three days after they cross the Jordan River, they're walking around the city walls for seven days. And then on the seventh day, the trumpets sound, the men in the army shout, and the walls of the city fall flat. And you can go to Jericho today, and you can see evidence of that in the archaeology uh, there in the ruins of Jericho. And there is one place where the northern section of the wall is still standing. And we believe that's where Rahab's house would have been. And so God brings Rahab out, brings her to Jer- or to Joshua. She stands before Joshua, and Joshua says, now take her and put her outside of the camp. Why take Rahab and put her outside of the camp? Well, number, there are a number of reasons for that. Number one, she is a Canaanite. She is not an Israelite at this point. And number two, she's a prostitute. She's unclean on two counts. And so she is brought outside of the camp. She's included in the rescue, but she's not included in Israel. But there is this piece of data in Joshua chapter 6 where all of a sudden she's living in Israel. In other words, she is now a part of Israel. How did that happen? How did that happen? And the answer is grace. She's brought into Israel. And she's not just brought in and given a back seat somewhere in the back tents of Israel and said, look, why don't you just go back and don't tell anybody where you're from and don't tell anybody what you did. God is not ashamed of Rahab. And you know the story in in Matthew chapter 1, she marries one of the men in the leading tribe of Israel in the tribe of Judah, a man named Salmon. And they have a son, and his name is Boaz. And Boaz marries another Canaanite, Moabitess, named Ruth, and they have a son and a grandson and a great-grandson. And the great-grandson they have is King David. And later on, down the line, comes Messiah out of this woman named Rahab. Let me close with this. You know, Pastor Ben, when he was talking to our kids this morning, said, he mentioned your family tree. Right? You have a family tree and I have a family tree. And here's the thing about our family tree. We don't get to pick it. We don't get to choose who's in that tree. I mean, if there's crazy Uncle Eddie in that tree, we just got to live with it. We didn't pick that, right? If we got this weird aunt or this you know, wacky person in there, you know, if you go back far enough in your family tree, there's probably people in your family tree you're like, whoa. You didn't pick those. There's only one person in the history of mankind, who's had the ability to pick his ancestors, and it was Jesus. Jesus, as the second member of the Trinity, had some say in his family tree. And it's stunning to me that he picked Rahab. Remember one of James's big messages? With God, there is no what? There is no partiality. So what do you do with a message like this? Well, you marvel at the beauty of God's mercy. And you receive the power of God's grace. You marvel at the beauty of God's mercy. 
and you receive the power of God's grace. What do you mean by that? I would say it to you this way. It doesn't matter what your past is. Your past does not determine your future. It doesn't matter what your past is. Your past does not determine your future. It didn't determine Rahab's future. Her past did not stop God's work in her life, and it didn't determine her future. And your past will not determine your future if you bring your past to the gospel. You've got to bring your past to the gospel. And here's the second thing. Your past is your past. Your past is your past. But your past can be redeemed into a thing of beauty for the gospel. Your past is your past, but your past can be redeemed as a thing of beauty for the gospel. Remember I said, every time you read about Rahab in the Bible except one, she's called Rahab the what? Rahab the harlot. Her past is her past. You say, man, I'm trying to get away from my past. I'm trying to forget my past. I'm trying to just absolve my past. I wish my past had never happened. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. And God says, no, wait a minute. You can't change the past, but you don't have to stay chained to it because I can take that past and I can make something beautiful of it that that will actually advance the messianic mission. Rahab, I can take your past and I can use it to glorify the fact that Messiah is not ashamed to call you his mother. Whatever your past is, and all of you have a past, Your past doesn't have to stay your past in the sense that it's something you're ashamed of. Your past can be redeemed so that it becomes something beautiful because of the grace of God. And so as we think of the story of Rahab, it's the story of how a woman of disgrace became the model of the beauty of grace. And that's really our story, all of us, because with God, there is what? There is no partiality. May God bless us this morning as we take this and as we apply it to our life.